Jeremiah 1, 4 to 8. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. The Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, those words we've just heard, they're Jesus' last words. Last words tend to be important when people get a chance to speak them. It's a very famous verse, uh, particularly as a verse that calls missionaries to go to distant lands and tell people about Jesus. And it's certainly that. But this is also a verse for Christians everywhere. This is the purpose of the church. It is the mission of the church spelled out. It is the purpose, therefore, also of every Christian. It is what Jesus calls us to. It's our marching orders. Not just orders, though, because with them goes a wonderful promise, a promise of help and support to God's people so that even the weak and the doubting can fulfill his command. So in these words, we find comfort, we find strength, we find purpose, and we find the presence of God himself. If you are not a Christian this morning, you see here in these verses something of why we take the need to spread the Christian faith so seriously, why we want people to believe it so very much, and why we think it's so important to tell others. Now, these are demanding verses. They're demanding uh, for the church as a whole. They're also demanding for our personal lives. I think that will become clear as we go through them. But they're also encouraging empowering and strengthening. Uh, you know, a good parent, um, a good parent stretches their kids. A good parent uh, pushes them, encourages them to fulfill what they can actually be, to, to aim high. And at the same time, they're with them, loving them, helping them, encouraging, guiding them, aren't they? At the other end of the spectrum, we've got the parent who tells their kids that they'll never matter, they'll never amount to much, Basically, they're a waste of space. And then they can fulfill that by never helping, by never encouraging, never being there for their kids. Or, or equally, a good coach. I remember when I used to uh, race, I used to uh, cycling. Um, sometimes I thought my coach was pretty pushy. He was a pretty bolshy guy. And, you know, he, he would push me. <laughs> and sometimes he seemed pretty hard. But I knew that on race day, he would be there jumping up and down with all his might, screaming for me to win. He pushed me, 
because he wanted me to get there. Now, what kind of parent is God? God is the good parent, and he does push us. This is one of those, those verses. He, he pushes us to be more than perhaps we thought we could be, but he's there for us all through that, giving us the comfort, the strength, and the purpose, and above all, his presence to do that. Now, before we plunge in, you know, these events take place after Jesus' death. His disciples have been scattered. They've been shattered, really. They've lost all hope. Um, remember that in shock and fear, when he was arrested, they all abandoned him. And they've been crushed by what seems like the end of all their hopes. And their own failure, their own guilt in the middle of that makes that feel even worse. Then on the third day, some of the women go to the tomb and they meet Jesus alive. When they come back and tell the 11 disciples, they are filled with doubt and shock and until they meet him themselves. Now Matthew only mentions one of Jesus' appearances to the disciples because he wants to laser in with real focus on exactly what Jesus says in this last moment. I want you to look at it in four words. Comfort, strength, purpose, and presence. A verse each. 17, 18, 19, and 20. Little symbol. So, these words in, in, in the Great Commission called us, as part of the church, to make disciples from all nations. And it's very easy, if, especially if you've been in church a long time and heard this before, to feel somewhat overwhelmed, to feel that this is for other people. It is maybe for missionaries, heroes, apostles, remarkable people, not people like you and me. But if we step back a moment and look at the people to whom this was first spoken, we realize that we are far from feeling alone if we feel like that. These words were spoken to a bunch of people who were at least as unsure and doubt-riddled as we are. We see that in verse 16. They've come back from Jerusalem where Jesus died. They've gone back home in response to Jesus' command. When they get there, they see him, probably at a distance because he's about to come up to them in a moment. They see this man who they knew had been dead. And they are struck with awe, and they worship. They, that probably means they fall flat on their faces in wonder and awe. You know, before his death, they'd begun to realize that this was a lot more than a prophet, a religious teacher. They had begun to realize this was indeed God himself come to them. But now they see that in a remarkable and overwhelming way. And they also see it at a moment when they had just lost all hope. They thought it was over, and here he is back again. And so they worship. They're amazed. But even as they worship, notice Matthew wants us to know, some doubted. Some doubted. Oh, what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, do they doubt it's really him? They see him and they think, surely I can't believe my eyes. Or are they just overwhelmed, disoriented? Because this is new and terrifying, and frankly it would be, wouldn't it? Or do they not know how to respond to him? You know, they, they know it was him, but, you know, he's, he's come back from the dead. Do I go just go and say hi like I, I would normally? What do I do? Or perhaps they're doubts of a different kind. Uh, doubt not rooted in, in him so much as in themselves. They, they remember the night before he died. They remember they swore up and down to stick by him through thick and thin, even to death. And then when the mob came for him, they all ran. 
they abandoned him, they left him to die lonely and alone. And they think when they come to him, can he accept us back? Can he forgive that? Is there anything left for us after that? And, and why is he coming, frankly? Is he coming to punish us, to reject us, to judge us? Their faith's real, but it's weak. It's wavering. It's worried, probably. These are the people God gives the Great Commission. Not a bunch of people with iron faith and confidence. Not great heroes, not people who have done great exploits already, but people like you and me who had worries and wobbles and fears. And of course, that's the, the biblical norm. We won't read it again, but that little passage uh, we read from Jeremiah earlier about his call to be a prophet. We could have chosen umpteen other examples. Whenever God chooses someone for a purpose or a mission, he chooses someone and they say, I'm sorry, I'm not up to it. Either Jeremiah says, you know, I'm, I'm just too young. I don't know what to say. Or Moses, he didn't have a chance to say too young. He was too young because he was 80. He still says, I don't know what to do. I don't have any words for this. I can't do this. So does Gideon. So does Isaiah. And example after example. And God doesn't come up to them and say to them, don't worry, I believe in you. You can do it. That's what we'd be tempted to say, I think, most of us, isn't it? He says, as we're going to go on and see, don't worry, I'll be with you. Nobody's ready when God calls them for a purpose. No one's ever ready. Everyone who is called responds in doubt and fear. And if you don't, if you respond with a great confidence, then perhaps we need to examine our own hearts if that happens. Perhaps we're a little more arrogant than we think. And the same is true of you and me. God is calling us, you and me, in these words to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're not feeling ready or useful or capable, it does not mean that God cannot use you to do that. You may have all sorts of fears and doubts and questions about it. Maybe you're a brand new Christian and you're not quite sure how to go about it. Maybe you're an old Christian, you're tired and discouraged. Or you're somewhere in between and aware of how many issues you still have to sort out in life. God can still use you. There's no barrier to him just as these men were no barrier to him. They worshipped him, but some doubted. And yet he carried on to give them the greatest command, the greatest mission, rather, that people have ever been given. That is a comfort, that God can use people like you and me. But he then strengthens them by reminding them of his authority. Jesus carries on to say that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. All authority. He's telling them that he has the right to rule the whole earth. Now, he's not telling them that as God the Son, he is in control of all things. That's true. That's undoubtedly true. The point rather is this. After his death and resurrection, God had appointed him as the one person, the one man through whom he would rule and reign over the world. The one who brings God's rescue and God's rule into human lives. You know, that's a very old promise in the Bible. God placed the world in the care of human beings. And we have failed in that care, both in the way we've treated each other and in the way that we have abused and broken the world we've been given. And our leaders, every single one, um, if they're not corrupt or selfish or oppressive, then they are at very least inadequate. 
God promised again and again, one day I will give a king, a Messiah, a human ruler who will be enough to rule the world well, both its humans and the earth itself. And that's Jesus. As Philippians said, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, he was the very opposite of every power-hungry leader that has ever been. He came as a servant, made himself nothing, all to the, to the very point of being willing to die. He took on humanity and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as a result of that, because he is the one human being who has ever lived up to what human beings are meant to be, because of that, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Their strength, their confidence in this mission comes not from who they are, but from who he is. Not that they are strong enough, but they serve the one who is strong. Not that they are right all the time, but that they serve the one who is right. You know, it's very easy to feel... Um, we, we might feel, we might be asked, you know, isn't it arrogant to impose our beliefs on others? Isn't it proud to say they should believe what I believe? And of course, if we're trying to impose our beliefs on others, then yeah. But of course, you can't impose real Christian belief on anyone. You can call them to it. Now, is it arrogant to call people to believe what I believe? If it's because it's, what I be it's about me, if it's about my confidence, then again, Yes, maybe that's arrogant, but this isn't about me. This isn't about thinking that we have solved the mysteries of the universe. This isn't about us thinking that we're the ones with all the answers. It's to point to the one who's mastered us, to point away from ourselves to someone who is better and greater and more wonderful than we are. And while we certainly cannot claim to have authority over anyone else, Jesus does claim that authority. And if you're not a Christian today then that's something that he wants you to know. He is a loving savior. He is gentle. He is gracious. He is kind. He is a servant, as we've just seen. He gave his life so that we could come and have life. But he is also God's king, the ruler appointed to put all things right. And so he calls you to come and obey him, to become part of his plan to put all things right. That's what gave the disciples the strength, the confidence to go out into a world where everyone was against them. Where the government hated this message. And these confused, doubtful people turned the world upside down. You, know, you can read that in the book of Acts, how they transformed Jerusalem, first of all, then spread throughout what was then the known world. We know that in less than a century, they brought the gospel to China and India, which is no joke before the invention of the airplane. They had purpose. And that's what we're going into. The, the purpose we are given, the mission we are given, is spelled out in verse 19. I come, it is because of what goes before. Go therefore. In other words, go from because of what I've just said. Because I am the one who has authority over all the earth, I want you to go. And the mission is this. It is to make disciples. To go and make disciples. Some people will be called to go 
to foreign countries far away to do that. Some of us will be called to move to a different part of the country, and some of us will be maybe called just to go across the street to our neighbors. But all of us go in order to make disciples. To make disciples by baptizing and teaching. And disciples, one of those words we hardly use in church, except in church nowadays, isn't it? Um, it's not really a normal word. Probably the closest word we actually use is apprentice. Um, you know, there's some kinds of learning that you just do with a book or a lecture. Perhaps you remember the joys of maths classes in school where you've never used the thing you learned since. You know, I'm pretty sure I learned quadratic equation, but I can barely remember what it is. I sat, I listened, I learned, I didn't put it into practice. Perhaps you've been in a really helpful course at work where you've spent the day propping your eyelids open, pretending that you weren't asleep. Or perhaps you enjoy learning, but that learning is about books, it's about understanding in your head. But being an apprentice, a disciple, is so much more than that. If you want to be an electrician, it is generally a good idea not just to read the books. You know, you have to go along the side the other guy. You have to watch him as he works. You have to follow his instructions. You have to do bit by bit, learn and see how it's done. Um, that's actually, my first job was an apprenticeship in church. A little bit different from being an electrician, but... Instead of just reading about how to preach or, or listening to lectures, I watched people, I worked with people, so I could soak up some of their wisdom. I'm very glad of that privilege. That's, that's what being a disciple is. It's someone who learns, but learns holistically, learns the doing as well as the understanding. And that's what we're called to make as a church. Not just people with new ideas about God, nor new thoughts, but people who come to Jesus... They come to understand and learn, yes, but also they want to, to, to learn to live from Jesus. They want to live like him, to obey him, to learn, to put into practice what he teaches and the way he lives. Now that starts, it says, with baptizing. Now obviously that's not just saying we should, it's just about the, the splashing of, of water on someone's head, but it's shorthand for everything that baptism symbolizes. Because when a person comes to be baptized, they're asking God for a new start for a new beginning, to be washed clean from all they've done wrong, to be rescued, to be joined to Jesus and to be made his, to be baptized, it says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, to entrust yourself to God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and say you belong to him. And of course, when someone is baptized, um, God uses that to give them a new confidence and joy in their faith in what he has done. So making disciples begins with calling people to do that, to put their trust in him, to rescue them, to wash them clean and make themselves his. But it doesn't stop there. It continues with teaching. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. A disciple is someone who aims to put into practice what they are learning from their teacher all the time. And that's what we're to teach as a church. That's what each of us as disciples must be seeking to do as well. Now, it's very important to notice the order here, baptizing and then teaching. If Jesus had said, teach them to obey and observe all I've commanded you, and then baptize them, we would think, well, you obviously have to reach a pretty high standard before he saves and rescues you. He doesn't. He puts it the other way around. He's saying, you don't become my disciple by first of all obeying me. You don't obey in order to be rescued. It's the other way around. I rescue you, I save you in order 
for obedience. We're saved in order to obey. Baptized, we trust in him first, but then we learn to obey. But the sign of a real disciple is that they do continue on to that second half, to observing all I have commanded you. Not that they're perfect, that's the point. A disciple, we're never called to be going beyond being disciples. We are disciples, learners as Christians, all our lives long. We will have things that we struggle with in obedience all our lives long. Uh, And yet at the same time, we'll want to be people who are never dismissive about Jesus' commands. We will be people who will never say, that one doesn't matter, or this bit of the Bible, I'll just leave that for now, or all the people around about me are living this way, so even though Jesus commands something else, that doesn't matter. We want to do what he commands. We'll be wanting, trying, seeking to obey him in all of that. And as a church, we must be aiming and praying and purposing to call people to that kind of obedience. You know, everyone is welcome in the church. There are no standards for who comes through the door, Uh, whether that's behavior or dress or your past, whatever. And, And if you're here and not a Christian, we're delighted to have you. It's wonderful to have you. But when a person joins the church, it is a step of real commitment to be one of those people who's seeking to learn, to observe, to obey all that Jesus commands. think actually yeah so for us as Christians the first application of this is simply to remember this is the heart of what the church is about there are many other things good things that we want to do we want to love people in every way we can we want to help those in poverty and need but this is the heart because this is the greatest need the world has as a church We do this together. So our our, our roles in that are different. But at the very least, each of us is called to pray for these purposes, that our friends and neighbors might become disciples of Jesus Christ. That's often a a very good place to start. You know, commit to pray for two or three non-Christian friends every day, that whether through you or someone else, they would come to know Jesus. Pray every day for the chance to talk even a little about your faith to someone, to talk about what Jesus is and what he's done. Tell them why you trust in him or to invite them to church. It's also a call on us, if we can at all afford it, to support the mission of missionaries and of the church as we do that. But also for, for all of us, at some point and at some time, we will be called to speak for Jesus. Many of us, there are people who are brilliant evangelists. That's not all of us. People who are really brilliant at sharing the gospel. Most of us are not like that. But all of us, nonetheless, are part, are disciples of Christ. And so like these disciples, we are called to talk about our Lord and Savior, the one who's rescued us, the one who's loved us, and to call people to know him. A brief word also to us as a church at this particular moment. Um, There's a great temptation to put into one half of this into practice and not the other. It seems easier to invite people and just 
to have the baptizing half, the invite them in, come, believe, be welcome, come and be part of us without ever wanting to do the teaching them to observe all I've commanded because that, it seems a little much, doesn't it? It seems a little scary, perhaps. It seems it would be so easy to put people off. And yes, sometimes it will put people off. If we have standards of membership that say, you need to live, or at least be trying to live in a certain way before you can become a member of the church. It's very easy to think, we don't want to spook people. But Jesus' promise of help in his mission goes with those who are working to put the whole of that mission into practice. Jesus' presence and help and authority goes with that. So for the church to grow, paradoxically, we we don't lower the bar. We try and do exactly what he says. And I won't bore you with statistics, but if we were to go to statistics of what churches grow and which churches don't, it's very clear as well there. Churches that lower the standards, that say that what Jesus commands doesn't matter, in the long run, fade and disappear. Those who raise the standards and call us each to be more than we think we can be, to observe what he has commanded, they grow. His call, though, to make disciples comes with a wonderful promise at the end, the promise of presence in verse 20. God's call on us is hard, but it ends with that wonderful promise. He's calling 11 men, 11 random, normal blokes, to go to every nation and call people from all those nations to trust in a God they have never heard of and to change their lives, to obey this God who is calling them to lives radically different from what they were that was the norm at the time. That is impossible. And yet we know those 11 men transformed the world. Why? Because of what Jesus says. I am with you always to the end of the age. And because he says to the end of the age, we know this promise is not just for those 11. It's for everyone, every disciple of Jesus Christ. And most especially as they go to perform this mission. Jeremiah, who's call we read earlier was exactly the same. He was afraid and God said, I am with you. That's God's promise to people all through the Bible as he calls them to great tasks. God is calling you to a great task, but he's also promising to be with you. He calls us, but he goes with us. To the end of the age, he says. He'll be with us to the end of the age. Every day, rain or shine, he'll be with us. That's exactly what the disciples found. If you read through the book of Acts, you discover that the more they obeyed this call to make disciples, the more they found God's presence with them. And the more they found God's presence with them, the bolder they were in making disciples. Acts 4.13 says that when the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John, the boldness with which they talked about Jesus, they were amazed, they were shocked. These were unschooled, ordinary men. They hadn't been to school, they were random fishermen. What made them different? They've been with Jesus. And even though we might not physically be with Jesus, it's that presence that makes us bold and ready to share the gospel, to love people. And you know, when Peter and John were finished and they'd been sent home by those religious leaders, they went home and they prayed for more. 
They prayed for more of God's help and presence, more of his spirit, and they received it. We as a church are called to make disciples, and each of us is called to be a disciple. The more we press into that, the more we will discover the reality of God's presence with us, his strength, his love, his power, his greatness. And that is a wonderful thing. Those of you who've had the opportunity to step beyond your comfort zones and maybe tell someone who has never heard it, the gospel for the first time, will know that. It can be a scary thing. And yet, in it, as you do it, you discover that God is there strengthening you, lifting you up, and giving you capacity you never knew you had. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your words are demanding. And yet your promises are great. Help us to long, not just to want, but to long to put these words of yours into practice. To see people come to know you, to be your disciples, learning to live the way you call them to. Lord, as we think of that, we are very struck by our own inadequacy, our own awareness of how Far, far, far we fall short in obeying everything that you have called us to do. So help us, Lord. Help us as you've promised to do. Make each of us today know your presence in a new way, a new power to obey you and to fulfill your command and your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.